Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> Good evening, this is Jean Bennett, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 93 minutes and we'll give you 93 minutes of words. What would Holly do if she could? Would she play Patty Cake? From November 16, 2011, it's a double feature of cartoons crossing over into live action and vice versa. From 1988, Robert Zemeckis's Who Framed Roger Rabbit and, from 1992, Ralph Bakshi's Cool World. Hi, everybody, and welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast. My name is Matt, and I write at cinemachine.blogspot.com. And I'm Andrew, and I write at the stopbutton.com. And this is our podcast where we talk about one good movie and one bad movie for about one hour. And uh, by the way, if you're uh, joining us now, you uh, can visit Alan Smithy Podcast at, an Alan Smith- at alansmithypodcast.com. We finally registered the domain name, so you don't have to type in the WordPress uh, thing anymore. Of course, if you're a regular listener, you know, as soon as you hit A, the rest of it will autofill into your browser by now. But. Now you can just have it autofill to alansmithypodcast.com instead of uh, .wordpress.com. So that's exciting. Anyways, uh, in this episode, we're going to be talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which should need no introduction, but we'll introduce it in a second. And uh, the rather blatant Roger Rabbit cash-in, which came out <laughs> four years afterwards – cool world um and uh i think we've got a lot to say about both of them but as is usually the tradition we'll talk about the good movie and the one that came out first first who framed roger rabbit so i say it doesn't need an introduction um but as you pointed out uh to me when we were talking about doing this one um this was sort of one of those movies where when it came out and then for a long time afterwards, it was kind of the biggest thing ever. Like it was the movie that everybody was talking about. I think I think the Roger Ebert review, because I'm getting him into this episode early, um, like, the <laughs> first, like the first few sentences are like, everybody I know is telling me I have to see this movie and you can't buy that kind of word of mouth, which, you know, is true and, you know, which is deserved because it's a great movie. Um but yeah, why why did you like I kind of know I think I kind of know what you mean, but well I know what you mean, but I don't know how it is that it came to be that somehow the reputation of Roger Rabbit waned. Like how did that happen? Okay, so it was it was really big in 88 through we want to say like 94 95ish. What's the timeline on the short movies? Um, well, yeah, there were Roger Rabbit shorts, two or three of them produced, 
you know, to go in front of other Disney movies, just like old cartoons used to come on before the movies did. Um, but I think the last of those was probably like 1994 or something. I think there was one. I yeah. think there was one. Be, I think there was the first one came before uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which was just a yeah. year after, which was just a year after Roger Rabbit. And then the other one was for like it wasn't for Thumbelina. No, it know. was for Dick Tracy was the second one. Oh, and the third okay. one was a far off place, which, you know, Whoa. nobody in even... the world has ever seen. Yeah. Holy mackerel. I just remembered something. I actually, when I was a little kid, went to see that movie because I knew it had the Roger Rabbit short. I've, I, I, haven't <clears> remember, <throat> I haven't remembered this for years. And then, and then I couldn't stay through a far off place because it's like not a kid's movie. It's like <laughs> it's like it's like a kid's melodrama and what kid wants to sit through one of those but yeah okay so when when was a far off place that was 93 and All right. some of this had the problem of it had to have some involvement well Steven Spielberg was involved in all this um in fact it's we we'll probably talk about him a little bit more later but the shorts had to come before Steven Spielberg involved movies, preferably. Um, it looks like Michael Eisner bumped the second one uh, to Dick Tracy, uh, even though it was supposed to be on arachnophobia. And what's funny about that is I saw Dick Tracy in the theater, and I don't really remember there being a short on it, but I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure. It, it could have It could have been there. I don't know. Uh, I might have also gotten to Dick Tracy late because I, I believe that was the first day I ever saw two movies in the first day. I saw Dick Tracy in the theater and Die Hard 2. And mm. it was uh, the same <laughs> theater. 1990. <laughs> Good summer. Yeah. Um, so I think that it just, well. Well, you know, there's kind of, I mean, this movie wasn't, let's, can we just cut to the chase and yeah. blame it on the internet killing people's memory? Okay, there you go. All right, yeah, the internet has killed people's. That's why Tim Burton's Batman is suddenly a piece of shit through revisionist internet fanboyism. Um, but I think also part of people forgetting about Roger Rabbit is that there was basically a resurgence. The animation industry revived thanks to two things this movie and uh, a tv series which came out the year before called the new adventures of mighty mouse which was a revival of mighty mouse obviously but it was it was produced by ralph bakshi who directed cool world <laughs> and which we're going to we're we'll probably have to jump back and forth between the two movies a little bit but we'll try to keep that to a minimum um but these two things kind of revived an interest in animation after basically three – two or three decades of animation being just the lowest rung on the Hollywood ladder. I mean if you've ever seen any Saturday morning cartoon from the 70s or 80s, first of all, I'd like to say that there are support groups <laughs> and you should reach out to them. And secondly, if you've ever seen a Saturday morning cartoon from the 70s or 80s, you know that even even five-year-olds had a hard time getting through that crap. And the reason for that was basically that 
when animate when theatrical cartoons died when they were killed by television and Saturday morning cartoons became the new normal um they, there was such a demand on production for them that basically they went to kind of a, an assembly line system of animation or yeah production on very limited budgets and as that was happening all the real animators, the Warner Brothers guys, the Disney guys, the MGM guys, um, they were all kind of old and dying or retiring, and they weren't like training people to be their replacements. So you had a whole bunch of like up and coming cartoonists going into animation who knew what they liked, but they didn't really know, you know, like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse, but they didn't really know how it was made. Like they weren't there in the studios in the 30s and 40s seeing how they were made so they kind of like blamed the lower quality of saturday morning cartoons on the fact that they had a fraction of the money but that wasn't the real problem the real problem was the the tv industry had to crank all these cartoons out for saturday mornings so on such a level that they were just like oh fuck we need a bunch of writers because, you know, TV producers don't know about how cartoons were made, you know, by Warner Brothers. They didn't know how Bugs Bunny was made. They, they assumed cartoons were made by writers. And all, those, all the classic cartoons, all the Disney and Warner Brothers, MGM, all that stuff, they weren't made by writers. They were, they were made by people who could draw and who just liked to draw funny pictures. And if they had an idea for a funny gag, they would storyboard it. They, they didn't have scripts. They worked off of storyboards because it was a visual medium. Arguably, it's even more of a visual medium than filmmaking. So uh, cart- people who could draw were suddenly – all of a sudden they had to animate these scripts written by people who you know had seen cartoons but who didn't really like them. They were trying to break into writing sitcoms and they were like <laughs> – and they were like, oh, so I'll just start write, by writing cartoons. And so suddenly, like, Saturday morning cartoons, by the, 19, by, by the 60s, basically, by the time of, like, Scooby-Doo even, which was, like, late 60s, um, cartoons were, like, unwatchable because, like, they were – the animation was kept to a minimum. The characters, like, didn't move. They were, like – I mean, you, you watch an episode of Scooby-Doo. It's, like, mannequins talking to each other for the most part. And that's not even talking about like, you know, 10, 20 years of Hanna-Barbera ripping off its own Scooby-Doo concept over and over. But yeah, these cartoons were not really car- – they were only technically cartoons. Um, I'm, try- I'm trying to – this is a long-winded explanation. I'm trying to keep it real brief. But the point is the the industry and the medium were considered not only dead but just like unpleasant. Like cartoon was a dirty word. And the only and the only theatrical cartoons that were coming out were like Disney movies that were being made after Walt friggin' died in nineteen sixty seven. So they were all just guessing at, you know, what how the old man would have done it. And if you look at Disney movies from the seventies or eighties, they're kind of like fully animated, which is to say they have a, many in between drawings and lots of movement and stuff, but they're not exactly I mean, they're all they're all just kind of, you know, Disney formula movies. And we all know what the Disney formula is, whether it's princesses or comic relief talking animals or the villains or whatever. Like everything is very formulaic. So it's fully fully animated formulaic stuff. Okay. So 
The New Adventures of Mighty Mouse hits in 87, and this is the first TV cartoon to be done by cartoonists because it's made by Ralph Bakshi, who was the first animator who made fully animated movies for adults, most famously Fritz the Cat, which was sold in 1972 as the first X-rated cartoon, which it was. And they made that their selling point. And and it's actually like, it, you know, it's well animated, but I'm not going to talk much about Ralph Bakshi uh, right now um, until we get to Cool World. Um, but New Adventures, like, had all this stuff that was basically funny and clever in addition to having funny drawings. It would have, like, pop culture references and it would break it would have you know it would break the third wall and it would have sarcasm and it would it would have actual humor as compared to i don't know the gary coleman cartoon or the smurfs or what have you or i don't know gem and the holograms or pick any cartoon from the 80s or 70s um so i believe it was because of the new adventures of mighty mouse and the buzz around that that they that Robert Zemeckis wanted to make this movie and they adapted it from a novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit which is really which is out of print and really hard to find and I would love to read it but it bears apparently it bears only like a slight resemblance to the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit yeah. the main thing that he was kind of that Zemeckis was kind of buying was the idea of let's have humans and cartoons together in a movie. And, and that had been done before in the movies. Um, probably the most famous example is actually a Disney movie, another Disney movie song of the South, which has been banned for years because it has uncle Remus and it has, you know, black people shucking and jiving basically even though it's not really, I would argue, a racist movie, but that's another story. Um, but, like, it had been done in the movies, and there's some Gene Kelly movie where he dances with, you know, Tom from Tom and Jerry because it's MGM. But, like, when it would when that would be done, it would only be done for, uh, you know, a scene or two at a time. And, by the way, Ralph Bakshi also um, experimented with doing scenes with live-action, like, backgrounds and animated characters on them or live actors and people talking to each other, but people didn't notice that kind of innovation because, you know, he was the X-rated animator because of Fritz the Cat. Um, Boy, this is a lot of backstory before we can talk about the movie. I apologize again. Um, But, yeah, so, I mean, but kind of like, you know, the amazing technical achievements of Who Framed Roger Rabbit is that, like, they put so much effort into the lighting and the animated characters casting shadows and and just like the physicality of you know when Roger Rabbit is jumping all over Bob Hoskins that it's really convincing and you know it's sort of like you know the movie kind of was you know maybe it would have been a hit on that alone but then on top of that like it's actually like a really good movie um just so far as you know the whole idea of okay, let's have it be, let's have it set in the fifties, and let's have it be like some kind of detective story that coincides with the golden age of animation when theatrical cartoons were being made. And it's got good acting, you know, good writing. It's it's a lot like Back to the Future, actually. Even though the two movies kind of on one level have nothing to do with each other, um, it's just kind of the fact that it's like Robert Zemeckis directing and 
there's similarities in the screen in the screenplay actually um I don't know, like when he sees the photo of Marvin Acme's uh, will in his pocket, it's just like Back to the Future 2 where they see the Gray's sports almanac in, in Biff's pocket in a photo, you know, and they're looking at it in the magnifying lens. Oh, and both movies have uh, friggin' Christopher Lloyd. And also both movies have um, music by Alan Silvestri, which is probably the biggest thing that reminds me uh, of the t- – that the, well, makes me associate the two. Um but yeah, you know, it wouldn't it you know, I watched it again this week. It it lasts, it holds up, which is, you know, probably more than you can say for Space Jam, which seemed to Yeah, Space Jam the, sort of killed the Which seemed to be the extent of other ventures into uh, you know, combining cartoons and and humans in feature-length movies. Well, you Except know, Except for Cool World. Um <laughs> and let's and, not forget that Space Jam sort of killed any theatrical animation for from anybody yeah. but Disney. Yeah. I was also going to mention Looney Tunes back in action. Oh, I, I forgot about that. It's another <laughs> – it seems like every subsequent effort after Roger Rabbit to do a Roger Rabbit kind of movie has ended in disaster. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um, but Roger Rabbit uh, does hold up. I Fucking great movie. <laughs> yeah, I think that – its audience just kind of grew up. Um, well, with Roger was, Rabbit. Well, what do you mean? Because, like, actually, I don't think it would have been the massive success that it was if you know, if it didn't have the adult critical acclaim going on top it of. Did but the adult? I don't think that adults sort of. Do you think it was based more on nostalgia than anything? No, I think that. There's an adult of a certain – until a certain point in time would always – you'd always run into somebody like, oh, you got to see The Godfather Part 2. An adult, right? Yeah. Yeah, that that age of adult, those people are now in their mid-40s and up. And until then, it's people telling you to see, if you're lucky, Blade Runner. And if you're not, they're telling you to see Legend. Right, because they have four copies of it on DVD. So it is really that the internet has sort of given voice to the lowest common denominator of even fanboyism. And But Roger Rabbit wasn't a fanboy thing. I mean, Roger Rabbit was as big of a cultural phenomenon as the first Batman movie. Yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah. if you weren't, you know around for that you you've got to realize that it was incredibly big batman was a bigger i don't know if batman made more money than indiana jones but indiana jones was never a cultural phenomenon like batman in fact i would argue that star wars Mm -hmm. never reached the cultural phenomenon level of that one summer with batman well you know batman was kind of the culmination of you know the previous 50 years of Batman being a beloved American cultural icon. But Roger Rabbit, kind of like Star Wars, was based on things from the pop culture of the past, but um, kind of reinventing it and creating new characters and mythology out of scratch. And it really and it really did create a mythology, by the way, because to this day, um, people refer to some cartoon shows or characters as tunes. 
you know, apostrophe, apostrophe T O O N S until they dropped the apostrophe. Yeah. It just, it just was incredible and it just didn't sustain. And I'm trying to remember, you know, I, I assume that Roger Rabbit lost its support when a certain segment of the audience grew into high school age and they couldn't like a cartoon anymore and that it never recovered. It never got rediscovered. Um, For example, the DVD has the three, Uh three, three uh, shorts on it. Yeah. I was under the impression those had never even been released. Like I had no idea till I got the, the Vista series DVD here from the library. And the problem is, is that the Vista series DVD, it's, the Vista series from Disney is their what their elite line, you know. Every M Night yeah. Shyamalan movie ever wanted to to see, you could get in Vista series. But um, it's still presented as as more to to kids in a way. Just the packaging of it is, you know, this goofy uh, fake. It's like a Photoshop of. Bob Hoskins against the, the drawing, and then Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, no, I'm looking at it. Into it. I'm yeah. looking. I'm looking at that too on the uh, IMDb page. But, um, yeah, the DVD is for kids. In fact, it even has, if I remember correctly, two different versions. Mm-hmm. No, not two. Not two different versions of the movie. Two different. Two different versions of the extras. <laughs> it, there's like an there's like the extras for kids or for the whole family, and then there's the extras for like grown up movie fans who yeah. actually care about the process. <laughs> they call it family friendly and enthusiast, and the family friendly disc includes That's the uh, full screen copy of the movie. That's hilarious because this movie was shot in like 188. The fucking black bars do not edge down that far into your TV set, you yokels. Um, and let's not forget that it also we're in HD land, so for them to perpetuate this uh, <laughs> just a few years ago. It's irresponsible. Yeah, so um, I think that, yeah, well, and, and now at this point it's, it's just... An interesting, been, uh, it's interesting about the, the age gap that you mentioned, like people who enjoyed this get to high school age, because like a lot of stuff happened real rapidly after this movie for animation. Um, basically, Steven Spielberg was so I'm 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 presuming here, but I think Steven Spielberg was so jealous of not being involved with Roger Rabbit that then not only did he decide that he was going to produce some Roger Rabbit shorts to go in front of other Spielberg produced movies over the next few years, but he decided he was going – he, of all people, was the most uniquely qualified to reintroduce the Looney Tunes for a new generation with Tiny Toon Adventures. That's true. yeah. Which, you know, is the brilliant, totally thinking outside the box idea of taking old characters and making them kids who go to school, you know, to relate to the kids who will be watching the cartoon. And – but the funny thing was, you know, he's Steven Spielberg. He's richer than God, so he – he, you know, not only did the series have, you know, big budgets, but he actually hired people off of the new adventures of Mighty Mouse to work on it, who then shortly thereafter 
uh, went on to they actually left Tiny Toons to create Ren and Stimpy, which then changed the animation business all over again, even more so than Roger Rabbit, because even more so than Roger Rabbit, this was a cartoon that would could actually be watched by adults on prime time. And also coinciding with this, you have The Simpsons, which whose influence has been well documented. But Basically, like between The Simpsons and Ren and Stimpy, you got adults to watch cartoons again and the medium to kind of be respected again by the industry or, you know, by the halt by Hollywood at large. Um, so, yeah, the move, it's funny. I guess the influence of Roger Rabbit extends further than people's memory of it. But, you know, it's a better, I think it's a better movie than Tiny Toon Adventures ever was a cartoon show or Animaniacs, which was like Tiny Toons version 2.0, also produced by Spielberg afterwards. Yeah, I haven't seen Roger Rabbit in. Oh, and by the way, simultaneous to all this, I think it was the same. No, it was a year after Roger Rabbit. The Little Mermaid came out. Yeah, and saved Disney's which was the, butt. For, which was the beginning of Disney, yeah, making popular animated movies again. For six years or something really long for them before they bombed out before uh, yeah, Toy Story basically, saved them. So ba- yeah, basically like Roger Rabbit was like at the cusp of all this stuff, all this renewed interest in animation that basically, la- you know, it kind of lasted. I mean, it went so strong, but. In retrospect, I think it was all kind of fizzled out and done with by the end of the 90s. And then Family Guy really put the nail in the coffin and Adult Swim. <laughs> but, um, you know, where you have like anim- cartoons that, again, have the minimum of animation, but now they're for adults because they have, sar- because they have you know, rude humor. Oh, and South Park also killed it again. Which doesn't even have animation or <laughs> what. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean it's been forever since I've seen it and uh, I still have the same problem that I had as a kid. All right, yeah, why don't – let's let's criticize it. <laughs> Bob Hoskins sucks. Uh, Bob, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, oh. I'm watching this movie and I'm saying to myself, so they're doing this really cool Chinatown thing. Thing and they're doing, you know, an homage to old um, Humphrey Bogart, Robert Mitchum movies, and then they have Bob Hoskins, who they casted on the Danny DeVito ticket. That oh, he's little and ugly, so it'll be funny. And Do you really think that they were going for that? Because I feel like the movie doesn't exploit his uh, short height, except for the scene where he's. Standing neck to neck with Jessica Rabbit and her kids. But that scene starts with him being in boxer shorts and a tie, and it's the most hideous thing (laughs) in the world. And I'm sure that Danny DeVito never did that because he didn't want people to mock him. Like he didn't (laughs) want to be like, you know, he he let them mock him for other things, but he didn't like go that extra mile. But Hoskins was willing to do it, and I'm sure Hoskins got the job because. You know, Zemeckis and Spielberg were like, wow, he was really great and whatever in the UK. And they're like, let's have him come over <laughs> and do this. I will say that Hoskins is able to do the physical acting with yeah. the, the animation. But no, my 
it's it you, you don't believe Joanna Cassidy whatever I mean the other problem is is that his his character's backstory is contrived yeah. just to to move it along um and take a lot of shortcuts and it, so whenever you concentrate on that it's a, it's a problem and the Zemeckis does a beautiful job recreating um LA that's like why the Chinatown feeling is there is because there's such a beautiful recreation of old LA um but actually I think the story is like the two Jakes right I've never seen the two Jakes I'm pretty sure yeah it is actually the two Jakes um is actually (laughs) where the well that's funny because it actually precedes the two Jakes yeah but I think isn't the two Jakes based on a novel anyway but yeah no, yeah. it's like the two Jakes very well could be based on Roger Rabbit because it's about <laughs> it's about Nicholson getting in trouble after he's on a on a marriage case and something like that, and it's it's like exactly that. Um, mm-hmm. But that and I have like some problems. I think the editing's weak, but I mean that wasn't my traditional problem as a kid. The reason I stopped watching Roger Rabbit was is because by the time I was fifteen, I was like I can't do I can't cope with bob hoskins wow okay see i mean okay well okay i was a kid too and i was pretty uncritical towards any aspect of this movie i don't think i could have come up with a single thing i didn't like about it but um i always remember bob hoskins fondly in this because i didn't know who bob hoskins was and then like it was such a shock to find out that he was a British guy that I was like, wow, that was an American accent he was doing? No way. And I just had all this respect for him for for doing for doing a convincing American accent, you know? I don't and, Yeah, I don't even And think. he is you know, and he is like, you know, his character his character's backstory is very convoluted and to a large degree he is just kind of a cipher. Not as much of a cipher as Gabriel Byrne because don't, that would because, because because nobody could be more of a cipher than Gabriel don't. Byrne in Cool World. But um, don't jump ahead. Oh, I, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Um, um, but that's but that's why I always finally remember Bob Hoskins because he was kind of he was like one of the first actors I became aware of as a kid because of finding out that he wasn't American and because he was, <laughs> eh, because he was acting opposite cartoon characters that helped also. But, um, I think, I don't know. I mean, there's nothing, would you say there's anything wrong with his acting? Cause I'll agree with you that his character is kind of weak, but I think yeah. he sells it. No, I think that, no, I don't think that he sells it. I think that he's never, mm. uh, it occurred to me in the last scene when, uh, oh, so, you know, they saved the day anyway. Um, <laughs> he's, he's going to show, he's like, they're scared. He's going to abuse. Oh Roger. yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, there's nothing in this character that I've seen in this movie that suggests to me he's going to do that when he's being rough with the rabbit earlier and stuff it's because he knows he can be because it's cartoon and so he's a lot, he's able to do this kind of thing to tunes there's it's he doesn't give any impression of being dangerous at any time or anything else cuz i was watching and i was well, kind of like it is yeah who else I mean, to some, was to in some degree it is well to some degree i mean it is a 
it is a Disney kids movie where well, the only person who's really supposed to be scary is Christopher Lloyd. But it's not. I mean, that's like the thing is, is it's not really a kids movie. Like, well, OK, well, let's get well, let's get into this now, because, you know, Disney didn't want its name on it because they thought it was too risque with certain things. And, you know, let's see what I mean, what's the rating PG PG 13? It could no, have been it's just PG. It, it could it's be just 13. OK. It's just PG. And, you know, it's it's kind of like the story, the you know, all the all the detective stuff is for all the detective stuff is for the grown-ups, but it's never, it's never explicit or particularly dirty. Um, but I think, like for kids, it's it walks that fine line of seeming like, oh, this is a story, you know, for grown-ups, but there's nothing scary in it, you know, that's going to keep me from enjoying the the cartoon part. And actually, as a kid, you mentioned like you you never think he was very threatening. Uh, I can tell you the scene where I believed that he had an edge to him. It was it's the scene where he uh, where he kicks that guy's uh, stool out under him at the bar and puts shoves an egg in his mouth, which you know is like Three Stooges stuff. But if you're a kid, yeah, it'll kind of it'll kind of make you believe that this guy's got an edge to him. Yeah, maybe as a kid it did, but this time I was just like. All right. Well, okay, but that, but then that's going back to what you're saying. Yeah, people growing out of it. I mean, I think that part of the reason, and I haven't actually seen Hoskins' gangster movies, so maybe he can sell being oh, a violent see, little troll. You should see The Long Good Friday. That's a great. Yeah, movie. but I just in this particular instance, I just, I he just doesn't sell it to me, and I think that it's um. Yeah, I, it that, shows that, how geez. strong the rest of the, the the movie is that he doesn't have, even though he's in the movie more than anybody else. Yeah, that he's able to to sell it. Uh, the movie's able to sell it. Um, yeah. Well, you know, another. I guess. Okay, so obviously, you know, Disney didn't make this a touchstone movie because of the violence. I think the real reason they did it is because of Jessica Rabbit, who was as much a part of the cultural impact exactly. at the time of yeah. the movie as anything else. And you know what? Looking, looking back, it's actually kind of hilarious because there's really something hideous about Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, she's very um, funny looking. Like it's like she doesn't have two eyes and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's creepy. Yeah, she's she's like a Frankenstein monster of like elements that, you know – on even on not even on you know a real person but on a cart on a cartoon sexy girl those separate elements might work but she really is like a frankenstein stitched together kind of monstrosity <laughs> um she looks worse in animation than like a barbie doll would if you suddenly put those proportions into into real life um but yeah, it's like you know the nightclub scene, and then the fact that the you know the movie the the driving the begin the first act is about you know her having an is she having an affair with uh, with someone other than Roger Rabbit, 
you know, and then that supposedly drives him to jealousy and, you know, commits some murder, which he didn't really. And, and who framed him anyway? Oh, gee, could it be the could it be could it be Christopher Lloyd? Could it do you think do you think do you think the guy who framed Roger Rabbit could could be the guy whose name is Judge Doom, who wears all black and who has like no. <laughs> who has like some kind of menacing wind blowing his trench coat in every scene. You Could can't get on that because in, uh, in Green Lantern, which I have read from multiple grown men, is a great film. The bad guy's the secret bad guy's name is Sinestro. So I mean, it's grown up. <sighs> um, yeah, yeah, I think that. Well, there aren't any suspects. That's like the greatest thing about Roger Rabbit. Is. <laughs> Maybe that's why they didn't put a question mark in the title. Yeah, there's no question mark. Um, it's There aren't really any suspects. As soon as the cast establishes itself, it's not a very big cast. Um, and it's sort of propelled along by uh, cartoon cameos like Benny the Cab. Like, I remember him having a huge role. He really does not have a very big role. Maybe he has a big role in my mind because I remembered playing the Nintendo game or whatever where you drive him around. (laughs) So um, once the human actors are established, it's a very reductive process after that as they die off one by one. Yeah, it's sort of like who framed Roger Rabbit? Could it be... uh... Judge Doom, R.K. Maroon, or Jessica Rabbit. And then R.K. Maroon is killed off, and then two scenes later, Jessica Rabbit uh, uh, saves uh, um, Bob Hoskins' life. So that really narrows it down, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, by the way, speaking of the whole murder mystery, and it's kind of a stretch to call it that, <laughs> but... Um, um, did I miss something or does the movie kind of contradict itself because when Bob Hoskins confronts Maroon because he finds out Maroon owns a piece of the of the trolley company that's going to, you know, that Toontown is going to be torn down through and Toontown is owned by the guy who was murdered supposedly by Roger Rabbit. Um, you know, he's like he's got his gun to him and R.K. Maroon, the head of the cartoon studio, is pleading, you know, I didn't know he was going to be killed. We were just going to blackmail him with the pictures of him and Jessica Rabbit. And then it's like, you're just going to blackmail him. Well, but but the reason that you hired Bob Hoskins in the first place was to get photos to show to Roger Rabbit. So it kind of ruins the point of blackmail if you spill the beans to the person to whom you know you could blackmail someone over right yeah there's that and the whole reason that acme and maroon like does maroon get killed because he's i think he gets killed because he's talking no because he owns two toontown no he didn't own toontown right oh i don't think he owns No, I think he does because there's all this stuff about his will because his will – No, that was Acme. Acme owned Toontown. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant Acme. No, Maroon gets – Maroon has this really – his last line is, I always love those tunes, So suggesting that he was going to try and get them Toontown, but he's in bed with the Judge Doom's company and it – Yeah. 
the third act is way too long <laughs> um, because all it is is it's Roger and Bob Hoskins and Jessica in trouble, and it's a very long sequence. And it's, it's like kinda, it's kind of it's kind of like a chase. The whole third act is just a chase scene that goes on forever. Yeah, once they, after they get to Toontown for a second, it just turns into this one thing, and so. This whole Cloverleaf thing, it's only owned by – It's there's a lot of lip service to grounding it in, like, believable reality for the adults. But you've got to right. wonder. But it's actually but it's actually pretty much just a takeoff on Chinatown. It's yeah. practically just like a – the whole thing is just like a reference to Chinatown and, you know, the company wanting to take over the land and, and whatever. So yeah, I know I know it doesn't matter. I just had to I just had to make sure I didn't completely overlook something because that seems like it makes no sense at all. Anyways, um yeah, and hmm other stuff. Well, you know, I don't like I said, I'm pretty I pretty much love this movie, so I don't really have criticisms of it. Although actually, okay, well, here's a criticism. It was going to be an observation, but I guess it's a criticism. Um and I don't know if it's time to segue into Cool World yet, but the animation of Roger Rabbit was done by a British fella named Richard Williams. And it's interesting because it's a British guy's interpret it's a British guy's imitation of Warner Brothers and MGM type animation, like Bugs Bunny and, and Droopy. I mean Droopy's in it, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's a Disney movie, and the majority of the characters who cameo are Disney characters, um, with a, with only a few exceptions like Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Woody Woodpecker, and Droopy. Oh, and Betty Boop, and that's all basically it. Um, and everybody else is Disney, and it's very fully animated. Like there's a lot of movement, but in a way, that's kind of what I don't. I like it in I like it for this movie for Roger Rabbit because actually the the constant movement helps sell the reality that cartoon characters and people are ex- are coexisting but ordinary in, ordinarily in animation I really I don't care for that because it's just something that you can do if you have enough money and if you look at most Disney movies especially like the ones I mentioned, the ones made in between Walt's death and Little Mermaid. Um, not that Little Mermaid is you know anything to write home about animation-wise, but it's just kind of like the full movement is like it's an it's a replacement for acting because it's replace it's replacing acting with constant movement. And <laughs> there's actually. You know, remember when Truman Capote said of Jack Kerouac that that's not writing, that's typing? <laughs> John Kay, the creator of Ren and Stimpy, who was Ralph Bakshi's protege um, and who worked on New Adventures of Mighty Mouse. See how this all interconnects? Animation is a very small, very small field. Um, John Kay actually said of um, Don Bluth, who was a Disney director – on movies like The Rescuers, and then he went on to do his own movies like The Secret of Nim and um, uh, An American Tale, which was actually produced by Spielberg. Um, he said, uh, he, uh, John Kay said of Don Bluth's movies, 
like basically it's just a lot of like flailing around and constant movement and that's not acting that's full in betweening so if you look at if you look at the quote unquote acting of the cartoon characters in Roger Rabbit um whether it's the weasels or Roger or Benny the cab it's all kind of the same thing it all seems like it's just the same mode of like constant frantic flailing around and movement and if you think about and Roger Rabbit doesn't really have a character beyond being someone who's supposed to be constantly bouncing off the walls and like I don't know baby Herman put him in there too it's just the constant movement um well what's my point um it's impressive and it was probably necessary to sell the illusion but um I wouldn't particularly praise the animation of Roger Rabbit as being anything great. It's the fact that it was combined with the live action that makes it great. But it's not the animation itself. Even though at the time, I mean, this would have been, you know, <laughs> this would have been light years better to watch than whatever was on Saturday morning, of course. Right. And also it was light years better than even whatever full-length animated movies would have been in the theater at the time, which would have been, you know, an American tale. Steven Spielberg presents an American tale. Steven Spielberg <laughs> thinks he knows a lot about cartoons. Let me tell you something. Steven Spielberg does not know a lot about cartoons. He just has a lot of money. And he also is not a funny guy. <laughs> <laughs> He seems to want to be a funny guy, but he is not a funny guy. That's why his great idea for an animated TV show was to reuse the Looney Tunes characters as little kids going to school. That's why his idea for a cartoon show was Looney Tunes Babies. So yeah, Steven Spielberg, not a funny guy and a cartoon fan who doesn't know really about how cartoons are made. And that's kind of the funny thing, and I don't know, if I have one kind of summarizing point about Roger Rabbit, it's as good a movie – it was as good a movie as could have been made by people who had – by like Hollywood people who had nostalgic memories of real cartoons like Roger – like like uh, Bugs Bunny and even Mickey Mouse, but who were not – animators or cartoonists themselves and fortunately it ended up not mattering but that's why they got a british guy to do the animation in this movie okay <laughs> no yeah the animation of roger rabbit is I'm trying to i'm trying to i'm trying to have as controversial of opinions as you possibly can about roger rabbit here. well i think the problem with the animation too is that um the only real animation you see with when they're not having to cope with shading to include Bob Hoskins is the opening cartoon with um, Baby yeah, Herman. Yeah, Roger Rabbit, Baby Herman, yeah. And it's it's sort of um, – it's a smorgasbord. Exact, it's exactly what I'm talking about. It's just like let's let's have constant movement and chaos you have like, and, and expensive, hard-to-draw camera angles and camera movements – 
to hide the fact that this is uh yeah <laughs> this is nothing really there are not occasionally these going. moments of like sort of just the beautiful quietness that some of the old disney cartoons had but then it'll be filled with something from warner and then like a lot of tex avery which is a good segue i was shocked how much tex avery there is in this movie well, it's like an it's, but it's not real Tex Avery. Well, it's, it's like, not real Tex Avery, but it, yeah. Well, that's the other it's, problem it's with the Disney version. Of that's Tex the other Avery. problem with the animation in this movie is is oh look, we're paying homage to what came before us by saying look, there's Dumbo. He likes peanuts, and it's cute, <laughs> right? Whatever, Dumbo's really cute. Yeah. But then there's no recognition of what you are lifting. Yeah, and it's also. And it's ignorant. Yeah, exactly. Like the Betty Boop cameo, I this never used to bother me, but watching it this time, I hated the Betty Boop cameo because she shows up and the joke is that she's in black and white, so she's out of work and now she's a cigarette girl in a club. Mm-hmm. It's like, give me an effing break. Oh, work's been kind of slow since cartoons moved to color. You know, it's like that's a cute line and everything, but – According to the internal logic, supposed internal logic of this movie, like, does shouldn't that mean there should be like a whole ghetto in Toontown made up of black and white characters who can't work anymore? Which, yeah. which, which would be amusing if you followed through with it. But that's the point; they don't follow through with it. It's just like a cheap laugh based on uh, ignorance of the history of animation. Yeah. So. As a segue, we have the fact that Ralph Bakshi isn't ignorant of the history of animation, yet Cool World is still an utter piece of shit. It really is. And <laughs> if you thought if you thought <laughs> if you thought I had a long-winded uh, introduction to Roger Rabbit, well, you know, strap in Mama Jama. Um Ralph Bakshi I'm a huge fan and Cool World is a huge piece of shit. However, it's not his fault. And let and let me explain because I'm not just saying that because I like the guy. Okay. Um, he, this, this is – what I'm about to read is from an interview from DVDverdict.com from 2004. They asked him, re-disappointed by the box office of Cool World and getting into the Hollywood mainstream. And here's his answer, which explains a lot of – why it's such a piece of shit. Well, Cool World blew me out of the business if you want an honest answer. When I went to Paramount, I wanted to do the first animated horror film. I hadn't done a film in a long time, and basically the original script I handed in was a cartoonist, live action, who goes to bed with a cartoon girl, and they create a girl, a bastardized child, half live and half real. Paramount bought that script... And when I was on location, they gave me a new script. Frank Mancuso Jr., who's the, who was the head of Paramount at the time, had the script rewritten in secret. I had a huge fight with the guy and punched Mancuso Jr. in the mouth. All right, Ralph Bakshi. Um, but Mancuso's father ran Paramount Pictures. He was Frank Mancuso Sr., so I had nowhere to go. Then Kim Basinger, who I never wanted in the picture – I wanted Drew Barrymore and Brad Pitt at that point – 
Kim wanted a PG film to show in hospitals so she could get a good reputation. She told Alec Baldwin that on set, and I told her she was out of her fucking mind. It was a total disaster. (laughs) And on top of that, um, I remember from another interview that Bakshi was under contract not to divulge any of this. He couldn't, like, at the time that the movie was coming out, he couldn't tell anybody that that he was being forced to to do right. a, that wasn't his script. He so he actually had to keep mum on this for years, and like take the heat for this, which must have been awful. Um, so well, the point is, this is not the movie he wanted to make. Um. So, you know, that said, like I mentioned earlier, um, if you go back, it's it's not in Fritz the Cat, but if you look at the next few movies that Bakshi did in the 70s, like Heavy Traffic and Coonskin, um, which are great movies, those movies actually have very thoughtful and artistic integrations of live action and animation, like live-action backgrounds with animated characters. There's even a few scenes of live actors with cartoons interacting and stuff. And not only that, but a couple of years ago, there was a really great uh, book that was put out about Ralph Bakshi's career called Unfiltered, which um, tells this secret story behind uh, this movie he did called Hey Good Lookin', which came out in 82, and it's kind of like a – it's set in the 1950s. It's about greasers. You know, That's the abbreviated just kind of summary of what it was about. But get this. Originally, the movie was released fully animated, but there is a cut of the movie that exists somewhere like in a Warner Brothers vault of the movie the way it was intended to be, which was that it, the four main characters were animated and the rest of the movie was completely live action. And this movie was actually like ready to go in the mid to late 70s, and Warner Brothers freaked out, and they were like, we can't release a movie where cartoon characters are the main characters and the rest of the movie is live action. Nobody's going to go see that. Nobody's going to believe it. So Warner Brothers actually could have jumped the gun on Roger Rabbit by about 10 years. And not only that, it would have been a movie for adults with sex and swearing and all of that stuff. So this is what I mean by these two movies are even more intertwined than meets the eye. So you got to figure, you know, Ralph Bakshi, like by the time, by the time Roger Rabbit comes out and he's just done this, you know, Mighty Mouse cartoon that's, that's like spawned Ren and Stimpy, you know, because of the people who worked on it. You know, he's like really excited to do this movie, right? (laughs) And then he shows up and then he shows up on set and it's like, oh, here's a script by the guys who wrote Poltergeist and Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. And, you know, like how fucking typical Hollywood is it for them to be for Mancuso Jr. and his screenwriters to be like, yeah, Ralph, you know, your your idea of a of a cartoonist going into a cartoon world and, and having sex with a cartoon woman, that's all really great, you know. But you know what you you know what the story really needs? A cop. <laughs> like a hard nosed cop detective. Like So the cop wasn't in Bakshi's original? 
No, and what I'm guessing is Bakshi wanted Brad Pitt to be. Yeah, I read that they wanted Brad Pitt as the cartoonist, which. Uh... <laughs> well, look, it would have been more believable than Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> well, true, but I mean, that's like the that's like the problem with the movie is is that yes, Kim Basinger is unbelievably terrible, but Gabriel Byrne's really bad too, and. Gabriel, Gabriel Byrne. Byrne has the excuse, at least, that the script is terrible when it comes to his character. <laughs> but I was I was so stunned watching the movie. Like, it never occurred to me. Gabriel Byrne has got to have has got to be like the least written, ostensible protagonist of any movie ever. The guy it's, just yeah. the guy the guy just does not have a personality, and he doesn't. He does nothing. He impacts no one. He is a pure cipher. It's yeah. There's no reason for him to be in the, the movie. <laughs> that, yeah, that's like the problem is, is that he's the main character too. When you saw the previews to Cool World, it was about Gabriel Byrne going he into has, Cool he World. He has top. He has top billing, and yet, but even when the movie came out, Brad Pitt was the one on the poster. Um. So yeah, I mean Gabriel, uh, yeah Gabriel Byrne's character just practically doesn't exist. Um, okay, look, this is a horrendous movie, and there's it's kind of hard to know where to start. But um, <sighs> Jesus, um, the music's good. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> who doesn't like who doesn't like my life with the Thrill Kill Cult? Um, uh, Okay, not only okay, but like the fact that Gabriel Byrne's character barely exists um is just kind of a feature of the prob of the bigger problem that the script is right now, like if anyone asks me off the top of my head, the script to Cool World is my least favorite screenplay ever written in the English language in the history of motion pictures. Because it doesn't make – it pretends that it has an internal logic, but it really doesn't care about having an internal logic. And it doesn't even – it doesn't even hold a consistent internal logic before the movie's prologue is over. I mean – it's going to sound so idiotic recapping anything that happens in this movie, but okay. In the prologue, Brad Pitt is in the forties and he has a motorcycle accident and his mom dies. And just as that happens in the cool world, a mad scientist creates a device that zaps him into the cartoon world. And the first, like the second thing that the mad scientist says to Brad Pitt is that he's sorry about his mother well, he was did, watching it. He was no, watching. No. <laughs> it, he didn't open up the portal until after she was dead. It was um, a little portal. Um, and, um, uh, okay, but then, like, the very next scene after the prologue is, is Gabriel Byrne going into the cartoon world and the way that happens, and this is something that just happens throughout the movie, is that like, okay, there's a cartoon girl 
who wants to have sex with a human because that's the only way that she can they don't the script doesn't even make it clear if that's the only way that she can enter the real world or if right. that's we don't find that's the surprise we find that out later or or if okay okay that's the only, that's how she's going to become real she has to sleep with the guy um so she grabs gabriel byrne and pulls him into the cartoon world okay so some cartoon characters can just grab people out of the real world whenever they want to oh no i guess it was because he's a cartoonist and he's like having some you know he's like drawing this world and he's having visions of it so he's like you know mentally connected to it in some way and then when brad pitt who is now a cop in the cool world because you know if you're if you had just come back from the war and your mom had just died you know and you had just been zapped into a into a cartoon world you know you didn't have anything else going on for you back in the real world you'd become a cop right that's what you would do right you got to make a living in this cartoon world. He's the only one who can because he's human. Right? But, there are, but, but he has a cartoon cop partner. And also, why does this cartoon – why does this lawless, chaotic fantasy world need a police force? Oh, it needs a police force to keep cartoon characters and humans from having sex with each other. Because it's actually very easy for humans to come through and we just didn't see the last million – that came through, which is the other yeah. implication that and keeps if, coming up. Yeah, and and if it's so dangerous for cartoon characters and humans to mix, of course the mad scientist who knows that would keep the human in the cartoon world. He would just keep him there, where apparently he can live forever because he got taken there from the forties, and now it's the nineties, and he's still the same age. So, you know, why not just keep the human around forever, you know, thereby creating an indefinite risk that he might have sex with a car. In fact, he even has a cartoon character girlfriend who he can't have sex with. So besides all the idiocy of it, we're we're sort of leaving yeah. out. Besides, some... that's all there is. No, there's Kim Basinger's performance. <sighs> it is truly. Okay, so. The animation in Cool World, some of it's pretty good. Some of it's way too cheap. I mean, it obviously, it costs $30 million bucks, and it's, it's, it's a shock <laughs> that it costs $30 million. Like, the producer, Frank Mancuso Jr., took half of it for himself, and then Kim Basinger took half of that, so they must have had like $7.5 million. I believe that. They have these terrible uh, sets for the, the real people. When the real people are in the animated world, they're on a set, but the animated people are it, – it's animated. Yeah. So that's like really – and it's – everything's two-dimensional, which I assume was like a stylistic choice, and but it's a it's a bad one. Um, But so the Kim Basinger cartoon has more range of facial expression than Kim Basinger does when she shows up real. Well put, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's like, what I was realizing. I'm like, when, wait, she's so much worse right now. Oh, and she has like, she brings in her southern accent for when she's real, when she didn't have it before. Yeah. And, um, um, I know, which makes it seem even less, I know, which, which makes it even harder to believe that it's the same character. But, 
you know, when she's doing the scene, like the second shot of her being live action because she just had sex with Gabriel Byrne, when she's doing that scene where she's looking at herself in the mirror as a flesh and blood human for the first time and like reaching out to touch the mirror and she's quivering. Mm -hmm. I think I hated her more than I've ever hated her in Batman. Oh yeah. A lot, a lot more. It's just, it's just the most douche chill inducing cringe worthy, like, and I'm going to give Roger Ebert a second mention in this episode because I read his review for Cool World also. He actually has a good point in his review for Cool World because it's it's kind of hard not it's kind of hard not to bash this movie uh well. But his observation was in the scene where Gabriel Byrne takes her into a Vegas club and they're both and she's like in a real human place for the first time. There are like a million things that could happen there and none of them happen. <laughs> well, no, that's the other thing is is that the movie's not about a cartoon that becomes a real person. It's about this a couple stupid things and then immediately after they get into the real world, like in this scene that we're talking about now, Gabriel Byrne ends up out on the street and then he starts turning into cartoon and oh no, something's going to happen. Like this is bad. And it's still not explained why It's not a it's not a yeah. I mean There's this well, spire it, thing that they have okay, to Okay, okay. Hold on. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, Gabriel Byrne and Kim Basinger, they start like you know, flickering between human and cartoon forms when they're in the real world. And it's like, okay, there need, there does need to be some kind of bad thing that's happening after they have sex, because after all this friggin' buildup, there has to be a reason why it's not a good thing for cartoon characters to be fucking humans and then turning human. Um, but then they bring up the spike kind of out of nowhere almost out of nowhere i mean it's 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 you see it in you see it at the beginning of the movie because it's what the scientist uses to bring Brad Pitt in but it hasn't been mentioned since then and then like and then all of a sudden like Brad Pitt is talking about it and Kim Basinger is talking about it and now suddenly it's like the macguffin of the movie but it also makes no sense because when they reintroduce the cute little scientist guy, he talks about how he couldn't touch it and he tried, he couldn't hold on to it, which means that how would he have put it there? It's just Yeah, so like good. he used, he used it to go to Vegas and and live there, you know, in secret as a cartoon character. And it's like – and, you know, of course there's no real definition as to what this spike can do. So, you know, obviously, of course, Kim Basinger thinks that by just how like getting it somehow that's going to solve her problem of flickering between human and cartoon states. But then when she does get it, which, you know, Ghostbusters style makes right. cartoons run rampant throughout Vegas just like ghosts ran rampant through New York at the end of Ghostbusters – um, it turns her back into a cartoon, and she's not even uh, she's not she's upset. not she's, she's not even upset she's not even upset about that. And then Gabriel Byrne is turned into a cartoon, who then tries to stop her. But when he's trying to stop her, she's she goes like, 
oh, you know, I'm not leaving. I, I like it here. Right. So apparently cartoons were going to take over the, the planet Earth, which – Yeah, appar- apparently that's what Holly – I just called her by her character name. Yeah, I'm sorry. Apparently, apparently that's what Kim Basinger wanted. But the problem I had with that was we don't know how big Cool World was. So, like, why would you need freaking – Well, you know something? If Bakshi had just gotten to make a movie about a cart, a half-breed cartoon human coming back to the real world to kill her father, it wouldn't have mattered. That's a it good would, point. It but wouldn't Frank have mattered. Mancuso Jr. That's what I hate about this screenplay is that, like, it, it, the idea – Bakshi's – the core of Bakshi's story, you know, uh, have sex with a cartoon girl – create an abomination the abomination comes back to kill you and that's a horror movie it's not about the freaking technicalities of what if humans and cartoons could coexist and the script from the poltergeist guys is all about that and just like zero curiosity about like philosophically what would any of this mean it just becomes about all this like screenwriting 101 stuff about you know what's the bad thing that's going to happen how's it going to be prevented and uh and there's a fucking cop whose job it is to keep cartoons and humans from having sex with each other and the thing i hated the most about that was that once gabriel burns starts coming to the cool world and bumping in to brad pitt brad pitt is telling him don't have sex with cartoon kim basinger and he does and he does this like and he does this like three times before it happens and it's like okay well what how exactly was he going to prevent him from doing that and he's He's saying to him, like, there's some stupid line like, you know, keep your pencil in your pocket or I'm going to have to something, you know. See, I think this movie – And it's like, what what the fuck was he threatening him with? I think (laughs) this movie is why Brad Pitt was such a bad actor for so long because (laughs) he didn't have to act. He didn't act opposite anyone. He just did a little stand-up. You know, he did like his dramatic yeah. stand up and it's like you watch it and you're like, well, that's how he was until, you know, Soderbergh or somebody got a hold of him and or Terry Gilliam got a hold of him and focused it a little. But it, yeah, I mean, like Cool World, the problem is, is it's not what Bakshi wanted to do. And the best the, the most interesting thing in the movie then is the story of this guy who's stuck living in the cool world and he's got a girlfriend that he can't do anything. And, and so it should be a cop movie, but it's not. Because, I mean, it would have been an amusing cop movie. I mean, Brad Pitt right. wasn't maybe, very good. Right, that's the, that's the thing. Like, maybe it would have been okay if it was just about Brad Pitt, the human cop in cartoon cool, cool world. But then, like, it's still got all the remnants of Bakshi's idea and the remnants are so like bare and pitiful that that Gabriel Byrne just literally has like no personality whatsoever. Yeah, the Gabriel Byrne performance is incredibly bad. Um, I can't even blame him. Like, what the fuck can you do? Your character doesn't even exist. <sighs> oh boy. Um, I mean, it opens with him in prison because he killed his wife's lover and it's like 
do you believe for a second that Gabriel Byrne was in prison for murder? Yo, well, I did like how he gave all the inmates high fives on his way out uh, and like, told them to stay cool. Because Gabriel Byrne, you know, he strikes me as somebody yeah, who'd have an he easy time in prison. Because he, he didn't get raped on a daily no, basis. No, not, so, not, yeah. not at all. Yeah. And it's like, boy, you talk about Bob Hoskins not being believably but tough. Then, what, is, what does that make Gabriel Byrne in this but, movie? But then he gets back home and he's got a house waiting for him. You know, it's the only movie where they, yeah, and the his, guy gets and his, out of prison. His, and, he... and his neighbor across the street has a crush on him because, you know, someone's going to have to drive him and Brad Pitt around in a car during the final act. Right, because, you know, that's, that's like a real – it's like – I'm, I was actually surprised to learn that these two guys didn't go under a dude, where's my car? Like, <laughs> the, a big dramatic moment of the movie, it really is. How are we going to get there? We need a car. But Holly's got my car. What will we do? <laughs> and, like, the teenage girl's like, I'll take you. My mom yeah. will be okay since we're saving the world. <laughs> yeah. Um... I, I mean, some of the problem is that Bakshi's direction of, the human stuff, the the real stuff is just yeah. awful. It's just awful. Well, I mean, he fucking hated every second of it. <laughs> I, I understand that, but I mean, it's just... I mean, that's kind of the interesting... I think, I mean, because the other thing I remember that he said about this movie in interviews is that, like, well, I had to make a script that wasn't mine, but at least I had free reign on the animation. Right. And, and it sort of is there, but even that isn't completely purely him because this dude directed Fritz the Cat. <laughs> and this movie is – okay, so let's – we got to – this is what I'm segueing to here because this is the other big problem of the movie besides the convoluted made-up-as-it-goes-along script. Um, it's supposed to be an adult Roger Rabbit that isn't even for like 15-year-olds. Yeah. Um not just in not just in terms of you know the maturity of the story or the characters or whatever, but just the fact that the whole movie hinges on on cartoon sex and they can't even show they can't even show cartoon boobs. And it's like how commonplace are cartoon boobs now like with anime and and everything. It's like yesterday's news by now, but in 1992 like, you know, Oh, Ren and Stimpy had just come out, like The Simpsons, you know, like people really wanted to kind of see like an animated movie for adults. And that's what this movie is promising. It's promising to be Roger Rabbit for adults. But It's promising to be a movie that a 15-year-old would have to sneak into, and instead it's... <sighs> instead, they can't, they have to call it doing it. This movie has more, this movie has more references to like... Did you do it? Oh, did, you, did you do it with her? Don't do it with her. <laughs> On the other hand, I did like the nails. Who's like the best part of the movie is is Brad Pitt's oh, sidekick. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, the cartoon sidekick of Brad Pitt. Yeah. Um, he he keeps telling Brad Pitt these like sex stories, but the <laughs> the dialogue is very confusing because it's like. I'm guessing the dialogue is also the product of the screenwriter. Yeah, I mean, it's all very confusing, but it almost at one or two points implies that Nails the Spider has sex with human women or something. Oh, I didn't, I didn't the, catch that. The first story he tells, he talks about, like, he's telling him a sex story, and it seemed to me like the the in, he was intimating that he'd broken the rules or something and that Brad no, Pitt I, I should break I didn't, the I didn't rules. catch that. I didn't catch that. That Brad Pitt should break the rules with his, his girlfriend uh. who 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, you know, I want to say something nice. Okay. <laughs> I want to say some nice things about the animation in this movie. Um, you know, Holly, Holly's a bitch and everything, but uh, Brad Pitt's cartoon girlfriend in this movie is actually a lot sexier than Jessica Rabbit yeah. <laughs> ever was because she actually has proportions that resemble – she has proportions that resemble human proportions. And then on top of that, she's kind of like – Lois Lane in the old Fleischer Superman cartoons or something like that, that kind of design. Right. I would really actually like, cause Brad Pitt eventually becomes cartoon so they can have sex, but they don't show it. They just like, Oh no, say, no, we, oh, gotta, no we can dude, we really gotta, do it now is actually, we got to, we got we to gotta keep the PG 13. You know? Um, well, no, it was intended for a PG and then it got slapped with a PG. Oh, that's right. And they didn't <laughs> fight it. Yeah. Cause this is the most appropriate thing for, a PG movie. Um, yeah. And then Brad Pitt turns into a cartoon and he's this terribly animated cartoon. Like I can't figure out why they drew him. He looks like, um, little Abner, right? Like, yeah, well that's, yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just feel like it'd be fun to get a still of that and go up to Brad Pitt all the time. <laughs> Ask him and to be sign like, it. Hey, can you sign this for me, Mr. Pitt? Yeah. You did. Your, your voice work was just, it was just, Dudding. You know, you know those, like really ambush him seconds. good. Ambush him what he's those like. Two oh. sec- for those two seconds at the end of the movie, man, you know, you haven't done cartoon performing that good and you, you didn't do cartoon acting that good until Inglorious Bastards, you know. Um, <sighs> yeah. And also the thing about the um, the animation and the design of this movie is that I think if Bakshi had gotten to make the movie that he wanted – Cool World would have looked the same. Yeah, actually, it would have. Um, it would have been like a, a dark, dystopic, sinister-looking city that's populated by you know a few sexy, you know, human-proportioned women. But then the vast majority of the characters running around are like 1930s Fleischer, Betty Boop, uh, Popeye-style things. And I really like that contrast, and it's really, like, compelling. Um, But, man, oh, man, that is asking too much of general audiences to, like, appreciate that. Because any any audiences at the time – I mean, people thought this movie was, like, a, you know, crappily animated, cheap piece of shit, and – I mean, I even did too at the time because I thought like, well, the characters don't move as much as they did in Roger Rabbit. Um, but the design of the dark city with the grotesquely cartoony things, that's compelling because it's kind of – in Roger Rabbit, the scene where Bob Hoskins goes to Toontown, it's sort of implied that he's like in physical danger by being there. I mean, like he's, he falls out of a building, you know, and then it seems like he's going to die. And there's almost the question of like, would, if is a human being in Toontown in real mortal danger, but apparently not because, well, Roger Rabbit, you know, killing a, you know, a tune killing a human is, you know, it's like this big crime, even though apparently it's not the first time it's happened because it happened to Bob Hoskins' brother. But, I mean, those are kind of the interesting, you know, existential, weird, really out there ideas that were kind of 
you know, just incidental in Roger Rabbit. And then in Cool World, like, I think if Bakshi had gotten to make the movie he wanted to make, those questions would have been at the forefront. They're not at the forefront in the Cool World that exists, but they're on the periphery still. Or at least they're part of, like, the feel of the movie. Um, And I don't know. That's kind of why I enjoy it. And this is going to sound weird after all of that, but... um, I think I kind of enjoy watching Cool World more at this point because I just like the ugly. I just like the because I just like the ugly weirdness of it. I like how ugly and weird it is, even if it's even if Bakshi can't go all out and have real, you know, sex or violence or language. I I, I fucking love the scene where Nails the Spider is waiting for the phone to reach Brad Pitt at the club, and he's like chewing on the desk. And then he's nervous. And then afterwards, when he's like nervously loading the the bullets into yeah, the gun, that is a good. That sp- is that is such good. Char- that's better character animation than anything that's in Roger Rabbit. Actually. Yeah, but I think to be fair to Roger Rabbit, there's no opportunity for that because it's not a movie about cartoons. It's a movie about Bob Hoskins and his. Yeah, and then Cool the World. It, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, the car- and Cool it's- World takes the time. Yeah, that's yeah. That I mean, you can see the difference in the two. To be more of a cartoon, there. a movie about cartoon characters. Yeah, Nails was great. He almost makes the movie <laughs> worthwhile. He almost, he almost saves. He almost saves it. Yeah, sure. Uh, excuse me. Um, well, yeah. So, yeah, I don't. If I didn't, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, this movie did terribly, <laughs> obviously. Um. And it really killed the idea. It really, I mean, this and this and Space Jam killed the live action animation hybrid movie for different reasons. But, um, I don't know. I think I think I enjoy Cool World more now than before. But at the same time, I hate it more than ever too because, um, I used to see this movie on TV, right, and. I would never see it all at once. I would see parts of it and I and I would always and I would always assume that the reason I didn't completely know what was going on was because I was watching it in pieces on TV. This was the first time I ever watched it from start to finish. And now I like I said I think I hate the screenplay for this movie more than more than anything <laughs> more than any other screenplay I could name right now. Yeah, it's – and you know what the thing is, is um, what, what's called good? I mean, um, what am I What am I trying to say? Poltergeist 1's not – Poltergeist 1's a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> like sure. Like it, it's, you know, it's a very not, popular not like, whatever. You know, that was because of the writing, was it? <laughs> well, yeah, but the writing wasn't god-awful. I mean, the writing in this is god-awful. Um, yeah. Well, I haven't seen Poltergeist too, so. I yeah, neither have I. I see, well, I looked up Poltergeist, and I think that uh, Spielberg did one of his uncredited rewrites on Poltergeist. He actually, he actually has a third credit. Oh, does he? The wow. first one. Yeah. So who knows to the what extent he? He probably brought it. John Sales in to write it or something, but <laughs> <laughs> took credit yeah. for it. Um. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. I I mean I don't know if I can. There's like six good minutes of Cool World, <laughs> and it's like yeah. 
the nails scene probably takes the nails and the telephone. The telephone scene's actually funny too because the telephone, the, the whole concept, the, the tel- ringing telephone yeah. hurts the telephone, and so he needs to get it taken care of right away. That's very funny. Um, that's the longest good scene, and it's probably about forty-five seconds. So. And it's actually like the best scene in the movie because you you care about nails and he's about to get hurt um, and you know it's coming. But then the other good stuff is, yeah, it's like there's actually this really good shot of Brad Pitt's girlfriend walking. And it's a really good shot because it's like a, a it's they're animating a real set or they've got a, a physical set where they add the animated character to. But they're not drawing attention to the two-dimensional scenery. Mm-hmm. It's just a really kind of cool shot. You could have done the exact same shot animated, and it'd still be really cool. But it's just a really, it's a really nice little moment. And then yeah. Mark Isham's score is actually, it's really good. It's, That's a, uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's easy to overlook. Yeah, but, but um, it, it, when you're suffering considering, at some point, <laughs> considering, like, really good. Yeah. Considering the probably insurmountable task of coming up with a music score for this piece of shit. He does a really good job. Yeah. And then the, but then, um, but, I, but when I think of the music in this movie, all I can think about is all the techno music that they, yeah. And I actually, I, I thought it had a different, I thought it had a different tie in song. I kind of, well, actually the David Bowie song at the end of the, at the end of the movie during the credits, that's called real cool world is pretty good. Yeah, but <clears throat> it doesn't sound like the rest of the soundtrack, which is no. all my, my life with the thrill kill cult kind of techno. I thought it was that Matthew Sweet song. Uh, no, he's not on the soundtrack. No, he's not at all. But I'm looking up his Wikipedia, and yes, he had a sound. Thinking... Oh, he had a he what? had a he had an animated cartoon from Space Adventure Cobra. Or something. Oh yeah, he used to put an- he, was, he used to put anime clips in his music right. videos. I sort of thought that this was it. Oh wow, he turned into Meatloaf too. That's interesting. Ooh, used yeah. to be such a he used to be such a sweet boy. Yeah, he used to put anime clips in his music okay, videos. Okay, so I just sort of associate cartoons with this, but yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe Matthew Sweet should have been Gabriel Byrne in this. Oh, one little one little bit one little bit of trivia that I'd like to point out, and I I sort of they even put this in the in the trailer, which I kind of which is probably why I remember it so well because I saw the trailer. I didn't see this movie when I was a kid, but I remember the trailer well. Anyways, the point is, um, when Gabriel Byrne is about to have sex with cartoon Kim Basinger. <laughs> They cut to various cartoon characters around Cool World somehow all sensing that something's up mm-hmm. and that Forbidden Law is about to be broken. And then they cut to these Disney-style cartoon rabbits and the cartoon ma- – the, car- the rabbit mom looks at the camera and says, man is in the bedroom, which if you've seen Bambi is a really funny, uh, is a really funny reference. It's a reference to the scene in Bambi where – the hunter is about to shoot Bambi's mom, and one of the animals goes, "Man is in the forest." And it's 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 kind of it's too it's it's too informed a reference to be in the movie. Yeah, just a little. And too and too, and too it's too clever for the movie, really, for such a rock stupid movie. 
um, okay. Well, let's see. Anything else about the cool world? Anything else? Hmm. Mm. Okay, well, one last thing, one last stupid thing about the script that I'll point out is um, you mentioned how Brad Pitt becomes a cartoon character at the end. The reason he becomes a cartoon character at the end is because in real-world Vegas, he's killed by cartoon Kim Basinger, and then when his human body is brought back to cartoon world and Nails and the cartoon girlfriend are mourning him... um, the cartoon girlfriend suddenly realizes and points out that because he was killed by a cartoon character, he now is going to become a living cartoon. And it's like, well, isn't that convenient? <laughs> <laughs> isn't that a convenient, happy ending? And it's a good thing, too, because Gabriel Byrne was such a cipher that we just let him become a cartoon character and forgot about him. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's, um, it's like you said, Brad Pitt just should have been the main character. There shouldn't have been Gabriel Byrne in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm frightened, but it I wonder been, if there's a it longer been in, version. Oh, I'm going to guess no, just because animation is too expensive for that. No, I'm thinking that. just with all the human stuff, like building up Gabriel Byrne's relationship with the neighbor girl, because you don't even find out her name. You don't oh, no, even know right. that he knows her. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there was probably more live action stuff that got cut out. <sighs> Paramount. They made such fine films in the early 90s. <laughs> yeah, why couldn't they have just kept making Friday the 13th sequels? Produced by Frank Mancuso Jr. Yeah, he was all right when he was doing those. (laughs) But as soon as he tried anything else... (sighs) Yeah, I would only recommend Cool World if you're a huge cartoon nerd. If you're just like a regular movie fan who doesn't particularly care for cartoons, watch Roger Rabbit. That's good advice. (laughs) Uh... Because there's some beautiful animation in Cool World, but... Jesus, I mean, you might as well keep the sound off the whole time (sighs) and put on your favorite My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult album. (laughs) Sex on wheels. By the way, how how funny is it that, like, because they had to keep this PG-13 that, like, the sex scene with Holly is just like she's dry humping him. It's like it's like worse than the Showtime softcore porn because at least on Showtime or Skinamax you'd have nudity along with the along with the simulated sex. Yeah, it's like a music video simulated sex scene. Yeah, not even an artful one. Yeah, boy. Or, you know, watch a watch a real Ralph Bakshi movie from the 70s, then you'll get actual cartoon sex. <laughs> <laughs> Not between cartoons and humans, unfortunately, but, you know. Okay, well, I guess that about does it. So, um, our next episode is going to be about more non-humans interacting with humans, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to be... Our Muppet episode. It's the classic The Muppet Movie and the last Muppet movie they made before the new one, Muppets from Space. And uh, I'm excited to be doing this one with you because um, 
I know you're a big Muppets fan. You're such a big Muppets fan that even on your uh, comics uh, blog, the Comics Fondle, you review the Muppets comics. That's because those are good for the most part. Yeah. Okay. So I think yeah. you you really you'll next next episode you can do all the talking about the medium of the Muppets. I'd have Instead. to read on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'm just I think you probably know more about it than I do. Just like I had to go yeah. on and on about the history of animation in this episode. But anyways, yeah, um, that'll be great. So next episode is a Muppets episode. And uh, uh, for an Alan Smithy podcast, this has been Matt. And this has been Andrew. And thanks for listening. And make sure to visit the uh, alansmithypodcast.com. That's all, folks. You had plenty money, 